If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you study uh, any on the book of Romans, you'll find that there are many passages in the book of Romans that are very controversial. One of the uh, most prolific expositors of the book of Romans in the uh, middle part of the 20th century was a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones was either associate pastor or pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London, England from 1938 to 1968, was a great champion of the Reformed faith, and uh, he did a series of sermons on Romans that have been published. Now, uh, the only, only the first 14 hardback volumes have been published. Uh, so if you think I'm slow in Romans, uh, you should have been sitting under Dr. Lloyd-Jones. But anyway, he says about the last part of verse 12 in chapter 5 that he believes it is the most controversial verse in the Bible, uh, which is saying a lot. And it has provoked a great deal of controversy. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> um, a little sinus infection here, draining on the vocal cords. Wasn't sure I could make it without some liquid this morning. Uh, so this passage, we talked in the, in the last study uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, about Romans 5.12 and that last phrase, because all sinned. And we, we talked about the, the various views that are held as to what that might mean. Of course, the view of Pelagius, the most condemned heretic in the history of the church, who said that Adam's sin didn't have anything to do with anybody else. Everybody sins on their own, dies on their own. Besides just being wrong generally, that destroys the symmetry, the parallelism in the passage. Paul, remember, is seeking to prove that we are justified by an imputed righteousness. A righteousness that is not our own, but is Jesus Christ, and that is counted to us when we believe. And so, knowing that that he might have a, a tough time, his audience understanding that, he moves to this passage in Romans 5 and says that's already happened before, that imputation, where he says Adam's sin is imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to us, so that all men are in Adam, are in Christ. And Pelagius' view destroys that parallelism. You have to be careful to keep that in mind in looking at the passage. Then we talked about uh, John Calvin's view that sin means corruption here. Uh, with all due respect to the great reformer uh, whom I admire tremendously, that doesn't work either. Uh, we looked at the view of Augustine, the realistic view, or the seminal view, where Augustine said uh, that all men were in Adam uh, physically. Uh, and you have to give some credence to that view because Paul, or depending on who you think wrote the book of Hebrews, you know, I'm going to say Paul, I can't be any more wrong than anybody else. Uh, but the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 7 talks about 
Levi paying tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham because Levi was in the loins of, of Abraham, he says, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek after returning from the battle with the kings of Chedorlaomero. Uh, so that view has some credence. But I said I think the best view is that Adam was the federal head of the human race, that God has designated Adam as the federal head, the representative, just as Christ is the head of the new race, the new humanity, the regenerated humanity. So the phrase, because all sinned, means that all sinned when Adam sinned. And that's what original sin is. A lot of times people talk about original sin and they think, well, that was the sin of Adam and Eve. No, original sin means when Adam sinned, we all sinned because God had designated him as the federal head of the race. So I want to look at another uh, phrase that occurs in verse 14 that we talked about a little bit, but I want to, I want to go a, a little more. Uh, where Paul says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. I think it's important to look at that for a number of reasons. First of all, because it's repeated more than once. We have it in verse 14, but it also appears, if you'll notice down in verse 17, death reigned through that one man. And then there is a variation of it down in verse 21, where he says, sin reigned in death. An idea that is repeated or implied three times in just ten verses obviously is important for our understanding of the passage. And again, we've seen in our study uh, the parallel between our natural physical union with Adam and our supernatural spiritual union with Jesus Christ. The fact that death reigns over all persons proves that God has judged everyone in Adam. In other words, the reign of death proves the principles of representation and imputation. And both of those are indispensable to the argument that Paul is making here in Romans 5. And these principles are indispensable for salvation because it is only uh, it is only for the reason that, that God has determined to treat the entire race representationally, either in Adam or in Christ, that Jesus could die in our place and be our Savior. That he could represent us. That he could die on the cross. That he could take the wrath of God for all of the elect of all time. And that we could be counted righteous in him. You, you have to keep the two parallel. And I said last in our last study, everyone in the world is either in Adam or in Christ. They are either going to be held responsible for the sin in Adam and their own sin, or they are going to uh, receive the justification that comes by faith alone because Christ is their substitute, their representative. And finally, the phrase death or sin reigned has its counterpoint in the words, so also 
grace might reign through righteousness that we see down in verse 21. Again, the parallelism is the same. So, the first thing to notice about the reign of death is that it is a specific period of time from Adam to Moses. Uh, one translation says, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. It is a fact that death reigns in our day and will continue to reign until the end of human history. But Paul specifies the time period from Adam to Moses because he means to teach something differently than just the fact that everyone dies, although that is true. The reason why Paul cites a specific time period has to do with what we were looking at when we looked at Romans 5.12, namely that death has passed to the entire human race as a result of God's judgment uh, upon everyone for the sin of Adam. That we are, that we sinned when Adam sinned. When we were looking at that uh, earlier, I said it's easier to see, although Paul is not specifically talking about the death of infants, but it's easier to see if you look at the death of infants. Infants have not committed any conscious sin, and yet they die. Now, the wages of sin is death. If, if it were not true that we all sinned in Adam, then infants would not die. Now, again, uh, that, that's the only explanation that I can see uh, for their death. They die because they've been judged guilty of what Adam did. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I believe infants go to heaven. That's another, that's a completely different story uh, that we could talk about some other time. Uh, but even though Paul's argument doesn't specify infants, uh, they are included in what he says. So I think it makes it easier to see. But he is focusing on all people. And his argument is that between the time of Adam and Moses, they all died, although there was no specific sin uh, or no specific law that they broke because there was no law. The law did not come till the time of Moses. Now, they were sinners, of course. We know that. The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the destruction of the race in the flood, proves that, that they were sinners. But the race as a whole was judged by universal death, not by specific sins of the individuals involved, but of Adam's transgression. And the critical idea here is imputation. Paul expresses it in verse 13. He says the fact that sin is not counted, and the word is translated imputed in a number of translations. He means that although all were sinners, God did not take their personal sin into account when he punished them. They all died since they all died, their death must have been because he held them responsible for Adam's sin. They sinned when Adam sinned, because all sinned. Therefore, 
all die. Uh, that's the meaning of the phrase, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. People sinned during this period, but they did not break a specific command of God like, like Adam did. Because there was no specific command for them to break. Adam sinned by breaking a command. God said, you can freely eat of all the trees in the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that. You cannot eat of that. Adam disobeyed. He broke the one law that he had. He only had one. He couldn't keep it. Uh, so that's, that's very important for our understanding of what Paul is teaching here in Romans 5. Adam sinned because he broke a direct commandment of God. The commandment not to eat of the fruit of the, gar the tree of the good and evil. And because Adam sinned, Adam, who was created to be immortal, died. He was not created to die. We talked about the fact that death is really not natural. It's an aberration. God did not intend for Adam and Eve to die. Had they not have sinned, they would still be alive today. Uh, the law did not come until the time of Moses. Now, if there is no law, there can be no breach of the law. I was, I was stationed in uh, Southern California in uh, 1968 to 1970, and we used to love to go up to Barstow and then go on across into Nevada because in that county in Nevada, there was no speed limit didn't exist so if you could go 140 miles an hour fine you were not breaking the law because there was no law to break so from Adam to Moses there was no speed limit there was no law to break if there is no commandment there can be no sin therefore men who lived between Adam and Moses though they did in fact sin it was not reckoned against them because there was yet no law. They couldn't be condemned for breaking a law which did not exist. But in spite of the fact that sin could not be reckoned to them, they still died. Death reigned over men, although they could not be accused of breaking a law. The law was non-existent. Why then did they die? They died because they sinned in Adam. It was their involvement in the sin of Adam that caused their deaths. Uh, although there was no law for them to break. That, in fact, is Paul's proof that all men did sin in Adam. Now there's always people who say, well that's not fair. I just don't want to be represented in Adam. Fine, you can't be represented in Christ either. If you don't, if you don't take part of the equation, you, you can't have all of it. So you can go stand before God and in your own righteousness. I frankly prefer to go stand in the righteousness of Christ. I want him to be my representative. And so I have no problem with Adam being my representative. Uh, maybe Genesis chapter 5 is the strongest 
passage in the Bible that teaches that truth. Uh, Genesis 5 is the genealogy of the godly descendants of Adam. The ungodly descendants of Adam are uh, in Genesis 4. But if you read that chapter with the exception of Enoch, all of them died. It's kind of grim. Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lived 920 years and he died. Enos lived 905 years and he died. Kenan lived 910 years and he died. Jared lived 962 years and he died. Methuselah lived 969 years and he died. That refrain is repeated over and over. And he died 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 and he died. Uh, Those are extraordinarily uh, long lives. 365 years in the case of Enoch, who was translated, and Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived, 969 years. But every one of them is cut off by death. Death reigned over this period of history just as it has over every other period of human history. Even though there was no law for these men to break, They still died. Why? Because in Adam, all sinned. All sinned. He is the federal head of the race. So, how do we apply that in a way that benefits us? In other words, how do we make uh, application of that in such a way that we can grow in our walk with God? Uh, Paul is developing an argument for the imputation both of sin and righteousness. He's not merely concerned with the argument, but with our dilemma now, because all sinned in Adam all must die. So what's the solution for it? We live live in a world today that for the most part, people refuse to believe that they must die. In... in, uh, One of the older commentaries I have that was done by Dr. Donald G. Barnhouse, uh, he gives an illustration of how back in in, uh, the early days of our country uh, in New England where uh, young people, uh, girls, would learn to read and write by making samplers with rhymes that they would put in needlepoint. And they often came from the New England primer, which taught... Uh, Bible truths through couplets based on the English alphabet. And under A, the child would write, In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And under X, toward the end of the exercise, she would write, Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. So, A to X. A is for Adam, sin entered the world through one man. X is for Xerxes. Death came to all men. We say today, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Using a a greater illustration to to give truth to a lesser. And yet we, we go to great lengths to deny that inescapable reality. Some historians believe that cultures can be analyzed based upon their attitudes towards death. There are three basic attitudes toward death. 
One is a death-accepting culture. The chief example of that is the ancient Greek culture and the death of Socrates. You remember that Socrates was accused of being an atheist because he did not believe in the pantheon of gods in Greek mythology. And so he was sentenced to die by drinking hemlock, uh, killing himself, essentially. And yet he did it with great fortitude, uh, and he said that he could. Socrates believed that the body, that all uh, material was evil, that it was the spirit that was pure. And so death would free him from the body. That's why a lot of people in the early church had trouble believe, believing in a bodily resurrection because they held that the, the material body, the physical body, was somehow evil. Socrates argued that the soul is immortal and that death is the only way that the individual can escape the, the curse of bodily existence. And so apparently with a, with a great deal of fortitude, uh, Socrates very uh, serenely with that philosophic hope drank the hemlock and died though we don't know what was going through his mind at the time I mean he could have been scared out of his mind uh, Plato who was his student records that all of them wept uh, profusely at the death of their teacher and their mentor so a death accepting culture uh, then you, you have a death denying culture and that includes our own culture today uh, the attitude of death denying I think is the most inadequate of all uh, why do you think our culture denies the inescapable reality of death I mean it's all about us it confronts us constantly either personally or in the news, I mean, just in the news in the last week has been the collapse of the condos in, in Florida and Surfside City and all those people that were trapped and died. We've just come through a worldwide pandemic where literally millions of people have died, and yet we still want to deny the reality of death in our, in our culture today. Many years ago, a uh, uh, a big West Coast funeral service did this huge survey of people uh, to determine the reasons why our culture was a death-denying culture. And the first reason they said was psychological. Uh, Sigmund Freud, who was the, moder the father of modern psychology, spoke of death as an unconscious fear of men. And therefore, the more one is faced with death, as we see it in the newspapers, on television, the internet, whatever, then the more you deny it personally. I mean, it might be true for those people in Florida, but not, not for me. Because we see reminders of death every day, we deny it vigorously, which doesn't make sense. Really. The second reason, he said, was cultural. Americans... are a culture that uh, emphasizes youth, youthfulness. Take a survey sometime and see how many news anchors you see with gray hair. Or Hollywood celebrities with gray hair. You don't get gray hair. And now we've come to a time, mega church preachers 
Find how many megachurch preachers you can see with gray hair that are not wearing skinny jeans. I told Shane this morning, I, I, it's probably a good thing I'm finishing up my ministry because I ain't going to look good in skinny jeans. I mean, if you look good, fine, but I ain't going to look good, you know. But we, we do all of these things. We, you know, I, I, I see people who are 70 years old who are dressing like they're 19. Why? Because we live in a culture that, that emphasizes youth and youthfulness. I mean, gray hair is a sign of decline, death. You know, I mean, I'm getting close. Uh, wholeness is measured by one's ability to think and act young. You know, and we, and we say things that don't make a bit of sense, really. You're only as young as you feel. Seriously. I mean, I think it's great to feel young, don't get me wrong. But you are as young as you are. You know, you are as old as you are. I mean, that little phrase, it really doesn't mean nothing either. It is what it is. Well, it is what it is. You know, but we don't believe that. Death in America is not the last enemy to be defeated, the last trump, as the Bible teaches. But it is an enemy to be defeated now through gyms and, and spas and facelifts and Botox and health food diets and uh, a variety of other pastimes and procedures that will preserve our youth. We, we want to preserve our youth. I'm, I'm too late for that. But, you know, you, you have at it as you see fit. But the, a death-denying culture. But the, the main reason this study found was religious. America, though was never a Christian nation, it was a nation that held, to a certain extent in the culture, Christian values. A Judeo-Christian ethic has prevailed from the time of the founding fathers until now. We, we were, the, the, the pilgrims came here to escape religious persecution and then turned around and persecuted the Baptists. To it, but that's another story. But uh, we have been a nation that believed that God had a plan for men. And that God made that plan clear. And that there was a purpose in life and death. And that in life and death, we should seek to glorify God in all of it. Whether we live or die. We, we carried out religious rites. Uh, funerals and burials all had religious significance. A burial signifying a seed that is planted that will one day come up again. But in the 21st century, we see a virtual ab uh, abolition of a traditional Christian framework. And there's nothing new in its proposal to take its place. Um, secularization has separated modern man from the older understandings of man and society, and in so doing separated death from the means by which it has been isolated. It, it's been robbed of, of any meaningful framework. And with no meaningful framework for understanding death, our culture has become one of denial and avoidance. Well, if you just don't talk about death, it won't happen. You know, you, you just if you just don't believe you're going to die, then you're not going to die. I mean, I've seriously, I talked to a man one time 
I'll never forget. To, he he was uh, wasn't a Christian. He was a member of the community. Uh, he was 94 years old. And this was back in the day when CDs, you know, certificates of deposit, were earning like 12 percent. And he had just had a couple of those mature and renewed them. And he's telling me how much interest he's going to make in the next 10 years. He's 94. And I said, uh, my friend, do, do, you, do you know many people who live to be 104? Because I don't know many that's lived to be 94. And I said, rather than focusing on the interest you're going to make for the next 10 years, you might want to focus on eternity. Because you're already way past the three score and 10 when men go out to meet God. But that, that his attitude is typical of most of America today. We are a death-denying culture, but death cannot be avoided. That is the reality. Death reigns. That is the point that Paul is making. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though there was no specific transgression. And death reigns today. That that is the reality and you go along in life thinking that you're going to escape it you will not the moment that you least expect it will turn up and then you will have to deal with it so the third class of culture is death defying and that's what you discover in Judaism and Christianity the Old Testament Jew looked forward to the afterlife like Job. I, I, always, I always get a little aggravated by Old Testament professors in school who would say there was nothing in the Old Testament about resurrection. What? What Old Testament did you read? Because I read in the book of Job where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I will see him myself with my own eyes, I and not another. Also, Paul also looked forward to that time. Paul's example is very important of an example of, of a death-defying attitude. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Paul mocks death. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are in Christ, the sting of death has been removed. Because Jesus Christ kept the law kept it perfectly, went to a cross and died in our place. And his perfect keeping of the law is imputed to those who believe in him, who trust in him. Because God judges us either in Adam or in Christ. Through Jesus Christ, death is universal. Death reigns. That's the problem. What's the solution? Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. You put your faith and your trust in him and death has no sting. Death has no 
power over those who are in Christ. It can't separate us. You realize that once you become a Christian, once you are joined in vital union with Jesus Christ, you can never, ever, ever be separated from Him. Not for all of eternity. Physical death will separate my spirit from my body. It will not separate me from Jesus. Nothing can do that. Nothing. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything in this world or the world to come. Nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. We need not fear death. The first Adam dies and we die in him. But the second Adam lives and we live in him. In Adam there are a multitude, a multitude of souls who are forever damned. In Christ there's an innumerable multitude who live forever, who are freed from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ died in our place, taking the punishment of our sins upon himself. He became our representative, just as Adam was our representative. And now in him we live. There is no punishment in death for me, because Jesus Christ endured the punishment that was due to me and he rose again that I might enjoy the reality of eternal life death reigned from Adam to Moses even though there was no specific transgression that they committed <clears throat> life reigns in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so the question is, as always, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? All men are born in Adam. Men reborn are in Christ. So have you been reborn? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? That he was buried and he rose again the third day? Do you believe he endured the wrath of God in your place and took your sin to the cross. And in him you live. In Adam, I'll die. In Christ, I'll live. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for this word. Now sanctify us by the truth. 